You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisberg coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Hospital, and I'm here with two fabulous co-hosts today, Sandy Werness from the Global Autoimmune Institute and Blair Raber, the founder of our Celiac Disease Program at Children's National. As all of our listeners know, education is really important when it comes to living with a chronic disease. With celiac disease, patients and their families have to keep up with reading food labels, learning about new products, changing food products, drug development, and of course, medical research. But then our doctors also have to stay current on new testing methods, guidelines for managing the disease, and all of the food stuff too to help their patients manage the gluten-free diet. It's an awful lot. So, to talk about education, we have the most fabulous guest with us in the studio today, Dr. Alan Leitner, who is the Chief Medical Education Officer at Boston Children's Hospital, and he is going to talk with us about celiac disease and education. We are so happy to have you in the studio. Welcome, Dr. Leitner. Uh, Thanks for having me. So, before we get into our really hard questions, tell us your story. How did you get into caring for patients with celiac disease, and how did you get focused on education? So I've been a gastroenterologist uh, for many years. And in fact, my first area of interest was inflammatory bowel disease. But I am, I think, a leader who welcomes the opportunity to help others develop their field. And so I gave over the IBD interest to a couple of my mentees. I've always been interested in celiac disease because it is a disorder that we know is caused by food, right? And that it should be simple and straightforward, but often it's challenging. And it uh, requires that we show great skill in managing uh, patients. Um, So I've been intrigued by it and um, have felt the need to build a program at Children's. Um, Interestingly, it's a disease where in the old days, the doctor made the diagnosis and said, you have celiac disease, go off and follow a gluten-free diet. And people didn't know how to do that. And uh, actually, it's really a team approach in caring for patients with uh, celiac disease. I remember when I was diagnosed in 2004 and my gastroenterologist handed me a piece of paper that had a black and white fuzzy image of my intestines. It said, you have celiac disease, don't eat wheat, rye, and barley, schedule a one-year follow-up. That's exactly what the gastroenterologist said to me about my daughter when she was diagnosed. She just, she exactly, she said, she did exactly that. She waved us out and said, you'll be fine, just don't eat wheat. Good luck. I don't even think we had a one-year follow-up. And, and and from there, you know, life didn't improve, you know, tremendously. And that was quite a long time ago. That was 20, that was 18 years ago or so. That was yeah. the genesis of our program because we had the same thing happen to us. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I just decided it was time I needed to read up on celiac disease, figure out how to do this. And by the time I... I got my nose out of the book, It was I went to Children's Hospital and said, we need to do something about this, yeah. teach people. So why does this happen? Mm-hmm. Why was there for so long such a disconnect between physicians giving the diagnosis and providing the tools for patients to actually 
survive this disease and get healthy? You know, is it because there hasn't been a pill that can easily be prescribed with a prescription? Or is it that there just isn't the education of doctors in medical school? Um, so I would say because there isn't a pill that doctors early on didn't think there was a role for follow-up. They don't understand what we understand now, which is that doctors have to follow patients with celiac disease to make sure that it gets under control, that there aren't any nutritional problems, and that we've now identified other autoimmune diseases that can go along with celiac disease that we have to monitor for. Um, the pediatricians in the community, I think, are getting more adept at celiac disease. I have fewer patients who are referred to me and have already been put on a gluten-free diet. And we recommend they be evaluated by a gastroenterologist before they go gluten-free. And of course, whatever gluten-free diet they go on without any help is right. not very good. And the blood tests for celiac disease have gotten better but the old gliadin antibody test was so inaccurate that often patients were uh, diagnosed with celiac disease on a, the basis of a test that was not very specific for celiac disease. That's gotten better now, and people know about ordering the test. Uh, but this all relates back to the issue of the need for education strong believer, as you know, in that. So obviously, over the last decade since celiac was reclassified as a common disease at the NIH, we've learned a lot about celiac disease. But So at your lecture today, so for our listeners, um, Dr. Leitner is in D.C. giving a Grand Rounds lecture on medical education as part of our John Snyder Memorial Lecture Series. And um, he talked about ongoing education, not only for, for new doctors, but for doctors who have been in practice for, for many decades. So how should doctors who have been in practice for 20, 30, 40 years be learning about celiac disease? And do you think that they are? So on an ongoing basis. I'm not sure how much education they're getting, although we have certainly hammered it home every opportunity that we've had. And one of the challenges is when new guidelines come out. And so the new European guidelines have just come out on how to manage celiac disease. We need to find a way to get that to the pediatrician. So in Boston, we're actually thinking of starting a podcast series, which would be same model, interview type model with a primary pediatrician talking to specialists about new guidelines, but keeping it practical. Nowadays, all medical professionals are so busy that they don't have a lot of time to learn. So we have to think about the most efficient ways from, for them to learn. And one of the adult learning principles is they want to learn things that are practical and relevant. So we need to translate the new discoveries into a way so a pediatrician can incorporate it in their practice so they can be looking out for the follow-up of their kids with celiac disease. That's fantastic. Um, with regard to the new guidelines in Europe, 
Um, how do they relate to the current ones we had? Because, of course, a, a number of years ago, Dr. Snyder led the effort to uh, develop diagnostic criteria um, in connection with the, or for and with the celiac group here at Children's National. Um, and at that time, you know, there were, mm, there was still work to be done and probably still remains work to be done. Do you, do you feel as though, uh, or how comprehensive do you feel that these new guidelines are? So the new guidelines, uh, Dr. Snyder worked on really a classic paper uh, looking at the management of kids with celiac disease, some about diagnosis as well. And that's what we rely on to say, what vitamin level should we monitor in kids with celiac disease? How often do we have to do bone density tests, if all uh, possible? Uh, the European guidelines are really aimed at issues like, do we have to do a biopsy or not? And so the standard guidelines were, if your patient has symptoms and they have a super high antibody titer, IgA, TTG antibody titer, then you could consider not doing a biopsy if you had very specific markers of celiac disease, like an IgA endomesial antibody, and the old guidelines said that you had to have positive genetic testing. So genetic testing, as I'm sure you've discussed, doesn't, if you have a positive genetic test, it doesn't mean you have celiac disease, but that you have the potential to get uh, celiac disease. And that test has not been proven to be absolutely reliable. So they took this out of the guidelines. And so you don't need a positive genetic test. There are a few examples where people don't have positive tests but still have celiac disease. My six-year-old actually um, did a cheek swab test for the genetics that said he didn't carry the gene, and we did the blood test as well, and he did have one of the genes on the blood test and ended up getting diagnosed with celiac disease. That's interesting. So. Is there, so, in fact, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day about the sort of the reasons that you, celiac disease is being found um, with in people who do not have the genetic um, predisposition, and so, and that the fact that you know, I remember a number of years ago at an international celiac disease symposium, some one gastroenterologist brought up one case of a virus causing it, uh, or at least being associated with, and so probable cause. So, so what causes are you um, are are coming through now in terms of being other possibilities other than the genetic component? So I still believe that people who have a negative test still have some genetic component. But maybe it's different than the standard HLA testing that we're looking at. So that's one point in this. I think that the trigger for celiac disease is something. So it's a very, we're moving away from education. Yes, it's okay, it's are. fascinating still. Um, no, so, you know, there's this nature and nurture model of illnesses. So nature means genetic basis and nurture means something that happens to you that triggers it. And celiac disease is an ideal example of a disease that has both components. 
So most people have one of the common HLA types associated with celiac disease. And there have been a bunch of other minor genes that have also been found um, to give you slightly increased risk for celiac disease. We all know the primary trigger for celiac, not so much the trigger, but the primary environmental factor, which is gluten. But there also may be a triggering event, which could be an infection. So why would a set of identical twins not develop celiac disease at the same time? And they don't always. Um, in fact, they sometimes they don't, don't develop it at any time, uh, even though one twin has it. So I think that there's a lot of work looking at triggers. One of the things has been GI infections like rotavirus, which used to be the norovirus of the past. So, so I want to get into some questions that we have from listeners. So we've teased out that we were going to be talking about education of doctors. So I have some questions here for you from some of our listeners. Um, actually, the first one is from one of our um, celiac education specialists. We get a lot of referrals to our celiac clinic in D.C., as we're sure you do in Boston as well, from patients who say that their pediatrician refused to test their child for celiac disease because they didn't look like the classic patient with a big bloated belly. How can parents push back and help educate these physicians without being offensive? That's a difficult question. Number one is the parents need to push back, and I can't tell you how many patients I've had who've come to my office and said, if it wasn't for me reading and pushing for this test, it would have never been done by the pediatrician. So on one hand, that's our problem. But also, I think we have to provide resources that families could use on the spot. So maybe we provide for them a handout for their doctor that says, you know, it's not always the classic presentations of celiac disease. And in fact, we're seeing more and more non-classical presentations in that, you know, we need to be evolved. But it certainly points to a deficit in the education of primary care providers. Okay. Do you get annoyed if a patient hands you a printout from a website about some disease that they want to be tested for? It's an interesting issue. And to be totally honest with your listeners, <laughs> I, I do get annoyed on occasion. Certainly, care of children should be a partnership between the family, the child, and the care providers. I'm a strong believer in that. But I have come, uh, some people come with ideas that they've heard that are not based in fact, and I try to explain why it's not relevant. I can give you an example. So recently I saw a child with celiac disease diagnosed about a year ago who's having abdominal pain. And so the parents said, I want him tested for all sorts of allergies. It's rare that an allergy in an eight-year-old would cause pain out of the blue as opposed to diarrhea or skin manifestations or breathing problems. But I, I certainly would consider that. 
However, at the end of the visit, we found out that the problem is simple constipation. And so we said, let's treat the constipation before we do any testing. And we had a little bit of a disagreement on that. that that's my plan is to try to involve them. So I showed them the x-ray. I showed them why I thought it was. So on occasion, the answer is yes. But in the course of joint decision-making, usually we work that out. And most people will say, okay, as long as, let's keep it in mind. We don't have to do it right now. We're going to try to treat the obvious cause. And if that doesn't work, we'll do it. So that, that's usually my attitude about it. How much of an advocate do you think parents need to be in their child's health care? I am a personal believer that they have to be strong advocates. Um, and I think at all levels, with all medical issues, I mean, it's most acute in patients who are hospitalized, but it's almost necessary for every patient to have someone there who can help advocate for them. Um, having had my wife just recently go through the emergency ward, I can <laughs> vouch for that. Um, but I, I, and I applaud people who are strong advocates for their kids. Um, I'm a strong advocate for the health of my family. Where do you believe that patients should point their doctors to to learn about celiac disease? You know, we know there's this web uh, of misinformation out there. So where is the place that these people should send their doctors for information? So I think they should send them to well-known organizations or professional organizations. For instance, the Pediatric GI Society has very good materials. And some of the major celiac organizations also have great materials. But we as people who care for kids with children should make resources available to our families that they can use for other people. So, you know, an extension of that talking about education is we have a video for kids going off to college. In selecting a college, sometimes you have to head to the food services or to, mm -hmm. to the infirmary to sort of talk to the nurses, make sure, number one, they know that you have celiac disease, but also to judge how celiac-friendly an institution is. So it's our program included advice for the family and how to go and judge a school, but also advice for the food services. So in case they're want to go to a school that's not well set up, that we can give something to the families that they can use to educate food services. So I'm a big advocate in giving information. Now, it's not always well received when they pass it on, uh, but, you know, they have my name to say, you know, Dr. Leitner suggested that I give you this, so. Some of the schools are even uh, using the, the different diets and in particular, gluten-free diets as a selling point for their for kids coming to their school. So, absolutely, yeah. all the private schools have fantastic gluten-free menus. It's yeah. a, it's amazing to me so. how far we've come in such a short period of time. I know, mm -hmm. you know, as recent as five years ago, 
they were some schools were separating celiac students and grouping them with say the nut allergies and separating mm -hmm. friends and you yes. know from the same table so that um, everybody could eat quote unquote safely. So that through education, it really has made a big difference to be able to have students not suffer right. from a social standpoint, which is such a big, important part of going off to college. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, totally. So when, you know, when we, when most of us go to our physicians, um, you know, we're allotted just a very short uh, amount of time. And physicians, of course, as you said in your uh, lecture today, they only end up using 6% of the knowledge that they learned in medical school. But there are a lot of really incredible, incredibly important reasons for that. And one is that, that knowledge is increasing now at the rate of doubling every 73 days <laughs> instead of every 20 years or it, in the way it was not very long ago. So it's absolutely impossible for physicians to be aware of and knowledgeable of, of, about everything. Even something that now is known to be so common, celiac disease. So in, the, in physician visits, you're working against a lot of different dynamics. One is that the physician really has to keep control of the, the time, can control of the interview, but is um, only really able to uh, get a little limited amount of information from the patient and may or may not be asking the correct questions. Uh, but, but in addition to that, though, um, it, se it always seemed to me and has seemed to me that physicians uh, would benefit from learning to listen more than managing the time more because they're acting sort of from their standpoint of needing to accomplish a certain amount as quickly as possible, uh, and yet the patient is sort of their interests are, are not necessarily aligned with, you know, with that necessity. So, you know, there's, there's a competition in really in, in the meeting. You know, the patient wants to have certain things uh, listened to, and the doctor wants to be able to help as quickly as possible and solve the problem as quickly as possible. So what do you see in terms of your avast done and, and needs to be done and how people learn? How do you feel it's best ad uh, to address that particular um, slot of time and that very critical kind of interaction that most people have with their physicians, which is such a very limited amount of time? So we have talked about this recently as we teach young physicians how best to relate mm -hmm. to their patient. This is called the doorknob. Yes, the doorknob com comment, right? Right. So yes. it's <laughs> like once the physician feels like they've finished and they're getting up to leave the room and they get their hands on the doorknob, right. the patient asked the thing that was most important to them. So what we're training our physicians to do is really guide the appointment by what the patient wants, right? Or what they want to get out of it. And not to strict, stick to strict norms on what kind of information they should gather. It, it turns out that if you stop and listen to somebody at the beginning, the appointment is more efficient. It's actually shorter than 
if you get the, the question at the doorknob where you have to come back and start over again and maybe use a different approach. So that's what we're trying to teach our residents and our fellows and our young doctors to take the time to listen actively to what people are saying because it fulfills everybody's needs better. And how do they do that? What are some of the techniques that they're learning to elicit better information from the patients? So uh, it's, uh, there have been studies that have been shown, and I can't quote you the exact number, but the amount of time that a standard physician gives a patient before they interrupt them is like 15 seconds. You know, I'll give you your chance to start, and then they, you know, they've got so much to document that they want to move people along. So we're teaching really young physicians to um, try to determine what the agenda is from people because they're more effective if they're answering the critical issues rather than making assumptions about that. So we have them practice, uh, even in a simulation center where they're sitting with a patient and practice this. We also use simulations. They're called OSCEs, they're Objective Structured Clinical Examinations, where you may have an actor who's playing a family member, and the medical student has to go in and say, find out what the problem is. And if they go in and they cut people off and just give them a long list of questions until they get at it, they're not doing a good job. If, however they really listen to the patient and then it's much more effective. And in the hospital, we do family-centered rounds now. So in pediatrics, that's the standard. You don't round independently of the patient and the family. You involve them actively in the rounds. What are your concerns about your son or your daughter today and even all the teaching is done with the patients and the parents and sometimes you know you can enlist the parents to be the teachers right so what do you see when johnny's disease is active how are they acting differently so i think you know in pediatrics we're ahead of the game now that's rarely done in internal medicine where, you know, the rounds are usually made separately and they come and tell you what they want to do. We're trying to enlist families in, uh, in the patient care. That's so fantastic. It, so it sounds like these simulations enable the doctors to learn practically about how to help their patients. In terms of all of the new information coming at the physicians, how do you best suggest that doctors approach learning this or do they just start googling like we do <laughs> so what we encourage physicians young physicians to be is lifelong learners and so if they see something in the office we try to make resources available to them that they can ex access immediately one of the biggest resources now today is something called up-to-date which lists 
every disease you can think of and up-to-date expert management. It has an advantage because it's web-based over textbooks because you can update things at much mm. shorter intervals. And that's embedded in our electronic medical record. So if I can't remember the dose of X, or I really am puzzled by why I can go in and learn. It's called just-in-time learning. When you have a problem and you are disciplined to learn right in the setting, and we give people continuing medical education credit for learning on their own like this, and we are coming up with novel ways to do that. So in the talk that I just gave, to access a website, there was a QR code. And so you could click on the QR code. We're using that for our residents. It's called just-in-time learning. So say a pediatric resident is going to examine a patient with a sore knee, and they haven't done a knee exam in a long time. They click on the QR code, and they look, watch a three-minute video on the proper way to diagnose a knee problem. So we're trying to build some of this just-in-time learning in the workflow. The holy grail with medical education for people who are in practice is to embed as much of it into their usual workflow per day, and people will accept it. Also, the other way to make it easier for physicians is to have resources that are available 24-7. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they had a busy clinic. They couldn't come up for air in between patients, but they know they need to learn about this because it came up. And so they can then go to on a, a website like the one we use is Open Pediatrics, and they can access that at any time. And we try to make the uh, learning that they do efficient so that we're using educational principles so they will remember what they learn. Wonderful. This is so fascinating. I know this is sort of a shift from the normal topics that we talk about, but I think that our listening community is so fascinated by education that they're really going to find this to be a great discussion. So I'm wondering, you know, there's there's so much that's really needed in terms of um, support and assistance to physicians in order to um, enable them to practice in the best way possible. And there's there's, especially in light of the tremendous amount of education and, or, or information that we have and knowledge base that we now have, which is just increasing exponentially. I mean, the science is coming out like, like wildfire in, in so many different areas. So, um, and yet the, you know, reimbursements are limited in terms of, um, you know, what, what can be compensated. So it seems to me that as we go along, you know, the disparity is growing, it may be increasing or, or it's such a rapid rate that in fact, you know, um, we're going to have a, uh, an even worse and more desperate gap between what good medical care costs and what um, and what can be provided. So, so do you have thoughts about this? It's not exactly an education, but you know, education is really not compensated. So in, in, in any sort of um, systematic way, I mean, a lot of it's supported by philanthropy. There is um, certainly supported by physicians themselves, but 
Um, but you know, it's very expensive and very um, intensive and time, time intensive, so labor intensive. So how are we going to come to grips with that in our country since we are still re really the world leaders in, in quality of care? Good question. Yeah. So you have I, to answer. Yes, <laughs> and I am going to do my best to answer. <laughs> so I think that making learning practical and relevant and accessible, easily accessible to physicians, is a great thing. But I don't think we can solely rely on physicians and that the education that has to happen for a family um, with a, a child with newly diagnosed celiac disease has to come from other professionals as well as other individuals. And I think really the other aspect we talked about is building a community of practice. So if you have a support group where you could say, you know, I tried this new uh, food that was put out by this manufacturer and said to be gluten-free, what experience have people had with it? Um, so that people can share expertise. Um, so I think that's valuable too. So I think it's going to take a village to sort of keep the education going. But education needs to be made re relevant and easily accessible uh, because, you know, the reimbursement is going down in our medical system, which I think needs a relook and we won't get into that. But I, I think there are increasing challenges ahead. So we need to come up, and that's the whole premise of my talk was, mm -hmm. we need to teach efficiently. Mm -hmm. We need to use technology where it will help us in the teaching. And we have to build these communities of practice that will help support the teaching. I'm interested in learning styles of, of you know, people in general, but I never really thought about it applying to physicians. And of course it would, but I know with you having gone through this master's program later in life uh, uh, for education, um, how, what, how, what kind of introspection did you learn with your learning styles? So in many of the, the education courses I took, the first thing we did as learners was to evaluate our learning style. And Kolb, K-O-L-B, is the person who um, has really done the most work in that. And he says that we get new inform information in one of two ways, either from assimilating it from reading or actually being out there trying things or experience, and that we have to reflect on what we learn. So that's like brainstorming. You know, I've had all this experience. I'm going to sit down, and we're going to brainstorm. And there's certain people who that's their preferred style is to sort of brainstorm. There are other people who like to take information and build the guidelines or the algorithms out of it. There are other people who like to take those algorithms and try them. And in fact, that's the group where most physicians lie. Um, there are people who like to try out things. And then there are people who just 
want to learn by doing and that thing. So these are all variations. And what we've learned is you may have your preference, but when we design a learning activity, we want to have parts that involve everybody. So for instance, you might say, start with, if you want to talk about effective teachers, you might have people brainstorm, okay, Think about one of your best teachers and what made that person best and let's share it around the room so we can outline the criteria for best learners. And once we get that, then we're going to have an, an exercise that we work on where we develop a learning activity that uses all those great teaching skills. So when we design workshops, we try to take advantage of all everybody's learning style to make it better. Very impressive. Absolutely. What's your learning style? I am <laughs> a, what's called an assimilator. So I like to prepare, prepare, prepare. So if I got a package from Amazon of something I had to assemble, I'd read the instructions three times. I'd sit on it overnight. Then I'd read them again the next day. Then I'd go to the YouTube and watch somebody unbox it and put it together. <laughs> but I prepare. Whereas some of my colleagues open up the box and start putting it together. And they say, oh, this doesn't quite fit. I'll, uh, you know, try this, you know. And so they're different styles. And those, so if you've ever been in a learning situation, um, where, you know, you're in a discussion, the people who like the experience dive right in and they're there, whereas I'm sitting there and saying, I'm not going to contribute anything until I'm sure that I have something smart to say. Mm -hmm. you know? I hope that every that husband with little children listens to this podcast and takes Alan's <laughs> advice. <laughs> because let me tell you, putting together um, kitchen sets or playground <laughs> equipment or um, cars, Lego sets, if all of our husbands or, or moms who build these things for our kids took the time to read and watch the videos first, they would get put together a whole lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> well, guys, unfortunately, we have got to let Dr. Leitner go. We have got to get him to the airport, but we want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast Thanks. today and sharing your wisdom with us and for being at the hospital for this Grand Rounds lecture today yes, and thank being you. a part of thank it. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, no, it's been my absolute Fantastic. pleasure. I've had a great time. You guys are great. Thank you. Well, we're all out of time for today, and we will talk to you all again next time.